As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and welcome to a thumbs-up, thumbs-down review of all the Boxing Day action in the Premier League. It was a day that began with Spurs looking mediocre at the start. I scream, therefore I am, said Antonio Conte, paraphrasing Descartes. Such were his inspirational words that Spurs fought back with Kane and Hoiberg, proving capable in the second half attack. Leicester had rediscovered their form prior to the World Cup break, but a consistently consistent Newcastle, three points they did take. In Southampton v. Brighton, it was Nathan Jones versus Roberto De Zerbi, with Brighton coming out on top. In the wait, who's their manager? Derby. I apologize for mispronouncing Derby for the sake of the rhyme. Questions were asked when Graham Potter left in September, but now the Gulls are three points ahead of the Blues as we close out December. Crystal Palace saw red and red yet again, while Mitro and Reem had Fulham fans in a state of zen. A late winner for Ait Nuri against Everton secured Wolves all three points. Frank Lampard's face showed he was thinking about breaking some of his players' joints. With 15 games played, Everton sits 17th in the table, one ahead of Wolves, who will push on if they're able. Santa arrived 24 hours late in delivering Gakpo to Klopp, whose Liverpool side remained 15 points from the top. A win over Villa helped scratch that nervous itch, with goals from Salah, Van Dijk, and Stefan Bajajic. Uh, Unai Emery was out for revenge against his former employer's Arsenal, but three goals against for Villa was submarginal. The Gunners have now won seven of the last. 10 here with me to talk about that and much more is mr graham ruthven hi graham oh bravo i think that's the first time my name has ever been worked into into a rhyme that was that was perfect taylor rockwell and and, and merry christmas hope you had a good time over the holidays did you spend most of your time coming up with that rhyme i did it took me about as long to write that rhyme as i think it took liverpool to scout negotiate and sign cody gakpo (laughs) Uh, a move we're going to be discussing over on the patreon but graham uh do liverpool lead the way for you in we want him we're getting him signings I think so. I mean, you said that it took the same time for them to do that deal as you to write that rhyme. I would, I would say they took less time. I think they about half of that rhyme's time to get the deal done for Gakpo. Manchester United fans getting Gakpo's name on the back of their shirt in the morning by the evening. He's a Liverpool player. That escalated rather quickly. As you say, we'll be talking about um, how he fits into Liverpool's, Liverpool's team and all other stuff on the Patreon. But yeah, that was an interesting end to Boxing Day yesterday. Right? Because it was like they were all like the Welcome to Manchester videos. I'm still not sure those were necessary, especially not <laughs> sure now, uh, or even that he was necessary for Manchester United. Again, we'll talk about that. But for it to go from like, oh, I think Liverpool are interested to, oh, they might be signing him to, oh, they have signed him was a, yeah. a rapid turnaround. You know, it's, you, know it's, you know, it's a quick deal when on my Twitter timeline, there's journalists reported Liverpool are interested in Cody Gakpo. And I'm thinking to myself, PSV have announced it. He's gone to Liverpool. <laughs> they, exactly. It's official. <laughs> I, yeah, I was not ready for how quickly that one took off. We will talk about that one uh, and plenty more. As my intro suggested, we're here to talk about Boxing Day in the Premier League. But Graham, you did mention it was the holidays. I haven't talked to you since mm. before Christmas. Uh, what did you do for Christmas? Uh, how was Home Alone? 
<laughs> yeah. So I had a classic Christmas complete with a shoey, a, a kebab, and a, a viewing <laughs> of Home Alone, which obviously is a classic, but I, I hadn't seen it for a while. And and I have some questions about that, fil- that film. First of all, Peter McAllister is definitely in the Chicago Mafia. Like that okay. is that is a thing that is that is a, a plot in, in I'm that. I'm so film. glad. I'm so glad we're here because this was my, the first note I had when you said you wanted to mention Home Alone. Is how are they so wealthy? Is he some sort of mob lawyer? He's definitely got mob <laughs> connections, right? It's the only thing that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean that house. That the fact he never says what he does for a job. His brother pays for like eleven people to go to Paris for Christmas, mm-hmm. like it, like it's nothing at all. Yeah, and then in the in the second one, they're staying in the plaza. And yeah, I, I just, I just, I don't know if Hank and Marv know that Peter McAllister's in the Chicago right. Mafia, because otherwise you are not hitting that house at Christmas time. Like that is not, you don't go anywhere near that house. But yeah, he's definitely in the Mafia. I know it's like, it's like late 80s, early 90s, I forget. But uh, it, it is a lot of cash being utilized. I forgot how much yeah. cash is used in that movie. And he does have that sort of like, eh, don't worry about it mentality, Peter <laughs> McAllister. So maybe, exactly. maybe it's the Irish mob. Uh, who knows? Graham, mm. what were your other takeaways, including how many times did the wet bandits die? Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, you you sent me a video of like a scientific <laughs> yeah. uh, experiment trying to work out how many different ways that Hank and Marv would would die Marv by being hit dead. by. Yeah, yeah exactly. And <laughs> um, but like, secondly, there's a plot hole in that the mum or anyone in that family doesn't know a single person in Chicago besides the police who can go to the house to check on Kevin. Not one single person. She does go through her like contact book and she's like, oh. They're all away for Christmas. You're telling me that every single person in Chicago is away for Christmas and the only people who can go and check on Kevin is the is the cops. I'm just I'm just not buying it. And that just feeds into the mafia it like does. plot plot line. Like I, that there's a fear of that family. Like they're not going around that house. Of course not. It's the yeah. it's like the Sopranos when all of his neighbors are sort of like afraid of him and he jokingly asks one to like hold a package for him for a while yeah. and they're terrified of what it might be. I think it's just filled with sand. I could see, yeah, maybe maybe Peter McAllister has played too many of those pranks. And so, uh, yeah, now no, no neighbors want to check in. It is definitely a movie. I'm, t- I'm making it real for a moment. It's one of those movies that about like negligent parenting that feels like <laughs> it was written by people who do not have children or are not yet parents because yeah. there's so many moments of like that's that. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't just be like, I'm sure we got all of our kids. I'll leave it up to one of the other kids to count them. Maybe that is a thing that happens when you have five kids. I think that's how many they have. But there's just a lot of strange parenting decisions, all of them made up for by the fact that John Candy is the best. And he really is the best character in that movie. So so speaking of John Candy, like Catherine O'Hara, who's the mm-hmm. mum in this film, just willingly gets into a van with about eight strange men to get back to Chicago. Yeah. And, yeah. Like, is that really the best decision? And you're talking about viewing it like that was one of the most interesting thing, things is five years ago, which is I don't think I've watched this film for five years. I was childless at that mm-hmm. point. So I'm still viewing this film through the eyes of Kevin. And now I'm viewing this film through the eyes of like the parents, the mob boss parent and Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> and like, is that really the best decision? Like, I don't care if there's a poker band and John Candy, but that, that is like the definition of stranger, stranger danger. Another thing, they expect Kevin, an eight-year-old, to pack his own suitcase for a trip to Paris. Insanity. <laughs> Insanity. (laughs) You're packing socks and bubble gum. I feel like that's all you're getting in that suitcase and maybe some comic books. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) they they got what they deserved. They got what they deserved, the McAllisters. My final one, again, like on a real note, when when the mother spoiler spoiler alert they reunite he does not spend the rest of his life alone in that house uh but the re the reunion is her being like hi kevin from across the room and then she doesn't go to him and i feel like if i had accidentally left my child at home even for like five minutes i'd come running through the door and like oh you're okay thank god like she she's very (laughs) coy about that whole situation (laughs) of uh child endangerment and child protective services probably being called yeah i mean i think if this one if this film establishes one thing it's that Kevin is neglected by his family, mm-hmm. um, as proven by, like, why does everyone jump on Kevin for Buzz deliberately eating his pizza? That's a great question. Like, Kevin is not the bad guy in nope. that scenario. That is Buzz's problem. But yeah, Kevin Kevin deserved better. Justice for Kevin McAllister, brother of Julian McAllister. And I think the reason, agreed, the reason why I'm especially antagonistic towards the parents in this one is because it happens again a year later. <laughs> like, okay, I can see, fine, it happens once, whatever. But the idea that you wouldn't then have, like, every child handcuffed to you on the way to the airport, it's it's a bit of a stretch. They do a lot more legwork in the first one, too, to establish how it all happens that they can end up forgetting him. In the second one, yeah. it's like, I oh, he followed the wrong guy when he was changing batteries. 
I need a little more, Graham. I need a little bit more from yeah. that one. The, the first one actually does a good job of, yeah. like, there's the storm that knocks yep. out the power, and then there's, like, the kid from across the street that's... He's actually, like, one of my favorite characters. He yeah. comes over and he's like, what does the gas get on this van? <laughs> and then he, get, he gets his head counted as Kevin. Whereas the second one, they don't even bother, like, setting that all up. They're like, oops, we just, we just did it again. Yeah. I, I just enjoy... At the end of the day, that uh, Die Hard is my favorite Christmas movie. I'm not here for the is it a Christmas movie debate, because if you think it's a Christmas movie, then it is one. But I like that Die Hard is maybe slightly less violent overall than the Home Alone franchise. And that is uh, a shocking statement to make. But they both they both rule. Die Hard rules. Home Alone is great. Graham, Boxing Day, also great. I'm going to say thumbs up before we even get going to Boxing Day across the board. I was not excited for the return of club soccer. We talked about mm. this on the show. And really, like, I almost was going to make this before those games started. Like, Graham, give me some reasons why you are excited for Boxing Day and the return of club soccer. But within 15 minutes of Brentford Spurs, I was back in. Because that yeah, game... no defending. Had, yeah, no defending at all. Uh, <laughs> but the day on the whole had great goals. It had horrible defending. Some really strange moment. Red cards. It was just very fun. And some of the goals were so... So well taken, so well created that you do sort of get that reminder that, oh, right, club soccer is is very, very good. So before we even get into the games, thumbs up to Boxing Day games for being wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thoroughly enjoyed yesterday's games. Of course, there's a, there's a couple more today. I think your team are playing today, aren't they? My United, Nottingham Forest, and then Chelsea, Bournemouth. Um, at least one of those games will probably be done by the time this, this show comes out. But it was a reminder of how good these games can be and I don't know what it is about Boxing Day but you always see that viral tweet that goes around what is it like 1969 of of the games where there was something like 40 goals over 10 games or something look we didn't get anything close to that but for whatever reason Boxing Day is very reliable for producing good games of soccer and that was the case again this year and I I, right from the beginning with that Brentford Spurs game that you mentioned I I was right back in and I I even enjoyed things my my, my first thumbs up goes to enjoying things like the atmosphere and obviously we had the world cup but i'm talking about like petty atmosphere where fans are singing about harry kane missing penalties and the whole back and forth between supporters obviously brentford and spurs is a london derby so you have that whole element as well like you didn't you didn't get that at the lucille stadium underneath the shadow of the skyscrapers with nothing in them (laughs) like that is that is a very authentic soccer culture thing and I missed that. So having that back was was good. So as you said, like we, we kind of jumped back into it. The fans right back into it. Tottenham, less so right back into it. <laughs> back into it in the second half. And that, uh, if for people who like us who took maybe the month leading off to the World Cup uh, off as they prepared for that tournament, uh, the narrative around Spurs was that they uh, were playing well enough under Antonio Conte. They were like fighting back and winning games or getting late equalizers, but not starting particularly effectively. And that was pretty much the case in this game. Uh, Graham, any thumbs up or down for you for Spurs? Just a thumbs down again for Spurs not being able to play a full 90 minutes of is. a match. Yeah. As, as you say, before the World Cup, Spurs couldn't stop falling behind in games and then mounting late comebacks and, and nothing has changed at all in, in that regard. This, this was the ninth match in a row that they've conceded the first goal. So we're really talking about an established pattern by now. This isn't this isn't a quirk where it's happened, you know, three or four times and you look at things and say, oh, that's that's unfortunate. Brentford deserved to be 2-0 ahead in this game. And, and about an hour in, certainly in the first half, they were the better team. I kind of had forgotten that in terms of where we'd left Brentford before the World Cup break, um, amidst the pre-World Cup haze, they went to Man City and, and they beat Man City in the final round of games before the, the World Cup. I'd kind of forgotten that that had happened. They are a good team. And for an hour of this match, they were showing it against Spurs. They were, they were controlling that thing that, that Joe talks about, control and dominance. They were doing both. They had the ball. They were creating opportunities. And then Spurs did as Spurs do under Antonio Conte. I thought they, they went a little bit more direct that midfield is an issue for me with Spurs. I think that's a big part of the problem. They don't ha- they don't really control games, and and that is an issue. And the midfield is a discussion point because Conte has used three players in there at his, at his last few clubs. You look at that inter midfield of Brozovic, uh, Barella, and I'm forgetting the third player, but there's a third player in Chalanoglu. there as well. Was yeah, Chalanoglu, I think, and that was his best teams always have that trio, and they always have a controller. 
but he doesn't have that player for Spurs and he keeps going for Hoiberg and one other. It was Basuma in this match and that element of their play just isn't there. They can't control games. And in the second half, what changed was they started to bypass the midfield completely and get it into Kane and Kulisevsky quicker. And once they did that, they, they had a lot more joy. But going into this January transfer window, it very much feels like this was a this was a narrative in the summer transfer window as well. So maybe this is the way it's just going to be for Tottenham under Conte. But it feels like they need to prove and underline their ambition. And so if they if they're going to make a big signing in January, I think it has to be a central midfielder because that team is is lacking someone who can just get their foot in the ball and control games. And I thought that was a microcosm of of this match. Is there a mostly realistic target you think that would make them better in the center midfield? Um, not really. I would need to go through and yeah. see. I, I, they've been linked with central defenders. I think a centre back helps you, particularly if you're replacing Eric Dyer. Oh, I think you didn't maybe love that's that? you didn't uh, love the no, slice. My, not not my favourite moment. I think that was one of your thumbs down. Was it for was. Eric Dyer. The thing that is so bizarre about it is when you look at it back. I think it's Tony who's the player that's closest to him, but he's he's like a, a good eight yards away from Eric Dyer. Like he has time to take a touch. And play that ball out, but no, I'm just going to s- s- just wave a wild leg at this and give the <laughs> give away the corner from which Brentford scored their second goal. Oh, Eric Dyer! I had a prediction that he would get a yellow card in the group stages because I thought he would play more with Kyle Walker injured. Uh, he did not, but he did remind me why I was concerned about him as a defender in this game. Uh, yeah, that whiff was pretty bad. Some of his positioning also pretty bad, and he certainly wasn't help helping with any sort of creativity through the middle when he would stride forward. Uh, maybe some of his long balls over the top were better. So maybe that's what Spurs can do from the jump is just go long immediately and then see uh, if that bounces out. Who needs a midfield? Who needs a midfield, Graham? Yeah, I mean that's what I've been saying all all this all this time. Midfields are for Overrated. losers. Just Overrated. get it long. Yeah, put the, the, the let's carry on the trend of the big men from the World Cup. Let's get Beefy Kefi at Spurs. Eric Dyer lumping balls into Beefy Kefi. That could be the next evolution of the modern game. They they already brought back Gareth Bale. Let's get Beefy Kefi in there. Uh, let's get them both back. See, Why not? And see it all what makes happens. sense. Yes, exactly. It all makes sense. And I'm going to say thumbs like middling to Brentford because a point against Spurs uh, at the restart is probably. A thing they would have taken before the game began, but to be 2-0 up, I I think there probably was that feeling of, we could do this, this could be a kind of a statement game for us, and in the end, it's the one point instead of three. Still one point, I'm sure they're happy to have, but uh, not the way that game seemed to be going. So, thumbs middling for Brentford, I'm going to say thumbs sort of slightly down for Spurs, thumbs way up. For Newcastle, let's talk about Newcastle 3, Leicester nil. When last we left these teams, uh, Leicester had started to turn around their poor start to the season. I, again, had not been paying as much attention to them. So I had to check first that Brendan Rodgers was still their manager. He is. (laughs) Uh, And then was, when I was surprised by that, noticed that their run of form in the weeks leading up to the World Cup was really strong. That they had started Mm -hmm. winning games, drawing games, getting points, and they had clicked into form. Newcastle hadn't lost uh, in the league since August, I believe, looked like a team poised to push on to new levels. And one team continued to do what we thought they would do, Newcastle, and the other team looked about as bad as we've seen them look. Uh, So I'm giving massive thumbs up to Newcastle for uh, hitting the restart, running with a with a emphatic win here, 3-0 away to Leicester. Yeah, so major thumbs up to their top four chances. And maybe Mm -hmm. even a stealth title challenge? Look, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's a stretch too far. But Newcastle are in the top two of the Premier League for the first time in 22 years. They're within touching distance, almost, of, of Arsenal and ahead of Man City, who, yes, have two games in hand at the time of recording. But still, like that is an incredible place for Newcastle to be where it very much feels like they are at their Stephen Ireland point of like developing that team. And to be... Second yeah. in the Premier League at this point. Eddie Howe, I mean, it's becoming it's becoming a cliche now. People talk about it so often. But nonetheless, he deserves such credit for the job that he has done. So a, a stat from Opta is he's only the third manager to win more than 20 Premier League matches in a single year after Ke- Kevin Keegan in 94 with that great Newcastle team. And then Roy Evans, slightly surprising, Roy Evans in 96 with, with Liverpool. So that's a long time since an English manager has been so successful in, in, in a calendar year. And this Newcastle United team are good. I think I think the worry for them was that the World Cup break had come at the worst time for them when they had real momentum. But the first half of this match against a, a good opponent, I know Leicester City are not the team they were maybe a couple seasons ago, but as you say, Taylor, they had real form before the World Cup. 
they dismantled them, Newcastle. Yep. This was arguably their the first half was arguably their their best of the whole season so far. They were utterly, utterly dominant. I do wonder how badly a number of injuries all at once would harm them. It feels like maybe that depth isn't there. But Callum Wilson doesn't start this match, and that was no problem at all for them. They are just a very well-coached team, and it gives me great joy to think how raging Brendan Rodgers surely was <laughs> after this, considering Eddie, Eddie Howe is now the new Brendan Rodgers. And given what we know about Brendan Rodgers' ego and how he views himself as like the best British manager of his generation, yeah, I can't imagine that's sitting too well with him. Uh, no, I also imagine Daniel Amarte conceding a penalty inside the first 90 seconds also did mm, not sit well not with him. Ideal. Uh, thumbs down to him for making this a dramatic game because at that point it did feel like Leicester were in some trouble and then they're 2-0 down inside of like eight minutes. So definitely in some trouble there. Graham, to your, to your point about the Steven Island roster build point. Uh, so that's for people who are, who are newer, uh, that's, that's what, like Man City in their roster build, they initially throw some money, they're signing a bunch of different names, and then they slowly start to figure it out, slowly get rid of some, uh, get a more cohesive squad, get Pep Guardiola, things work out just fine. It does feel like a very impressive point for Newcastle to be in, given the relatively like recent tenure of their new owners. Uh, I don't, I didn't want to go straight to the cynical point about Saudi ownership. I'm not even sure we need to get into that. We've talked about it a bunch, and frankly, I'm tired of talking about, um, like sad Middle East politics uh, influencing <laughs> soccer. So I'm just going to say I'm really impressed by the way they've gone about building this roster. Uh, n- no new breaking news here. I think many people have covered this uh, better than I, but just little things like getting in Kieran Trippier for 14 million euros, but then also splashing money for uh, Bruno Guimarães, uh, bring in Alexander Isak for a good amount of money when that becomes an option. It just feels like they're spending that big money wisely or intelligently and then they're using that money as well to to spend a little bit more to get those to spend 17 on a player who maybe would have been 13 elsewhere but you got to overpay a little bit when you're the premier league and when you have the saudi backing but they're they're creating a strong team that you're right maybe doesn't have that top two top one depth but you can see the blueprint you can see how they're going to keep building and it does seem like they are very much uh, on the right trajectory yeah, there, there's been barely any wastage from them in the transfer market. So when they have signed a player, that player has gone into that team to become a, a, a key figure. The one player that hasn't quite done it yet is, is probably Alexander Isak, and that's just down to that's just down to injury. He yeah. he played that first game at Anfield. He scored in that game. He looked brilliant. And then I think he's been injured ever since. So that's a little bit unfair to say that he's wasted at this point. I still think he will come good for Newcastle. But the fact that they're in this position this early in their development. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like they're in any rush, which actually ben- benefits them in getting to where they want to be quicker. I know, that, I know that sounds almost contradictory, but the fact that they are willing to wait for the right players, they're not overspending. You wouldn't say any deal that Newcastle have done has been an outrageous amount of money for the player that they're buying. And I think two decisions that they've made have been key. One was Eddie Howe. I thought Eddie Howe was their Mark Hughes, relating it to, yeah, to Manchester agreed. City. Agreed. And now, I, now I'm not sure that he is. Now Eddie Howe is, seems like he's a very good coach. I know we knew that from the first phase when he was at Bournemouth, but his last season was pretty bad, and so I had my doubts about Eddie Howe, particularly in a, in a defensive sense. And then the second decision, second appointment, has been Dan Ashworth, who was the guy credited with making Brighton the club that they are right now. So... Those the, Newcastle put in place kind of the, the structure first before they went and got players. And I think they're, they're seeing the benefit of that almost immediately. I get the sense that like Mark Hughes, when he takes over at Man City, was asked, like, who do you want to buy in that job interview? Who are the players that you would bring in to make this team better? With Eddie Howe, I get the sense the question was, how would you make the current team better? And then maybe who would you buy? Because certainly they're spending money. Don't get me wrong. It's the Premier League. Everyone's spending money. But... How good Miguel Almiron has looked yeah. uh, in this Newcastle team is just night and day from where he was. And he looked fine at times under Rafa Benitez and Mike Ashley, but just that next level confidence wasn't there. The confidence we saw at Atlanta that we weren't sure we would ever see in the Premier League. His goal in this one is just pure confidence, pure belief. And it's also just a team that's playing really well around him. So to your point about the roster build, there's that line... It's like slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And that seems to be the way Newcastle are doing it. They're moving kind of slowly, but in making smart acquisitions, smooth acquisitions, they're moving faster than I would have expected. So a a really strong statement, I think, back uh, after the break, this 3-0 win over uh, over Leicester for Newcastle. Who knows if that penalty 
would have made things different, but I think even there, it's still a pretty resounding win. Yeah, and uh, Almiron, there are three players I want to highlight very quickly in, in, in terms of where the the real strength of this Newcastle team is, is in that attacking midfield unit of Almiron, Bruno Gomares, and Joe Linton. And the ground that they cover is just absolutely astonishing. And I don't and I don't just mean in an attacking sense. That's easy to look at what Almiron is, is doing. He's got what eight goals in nine games. We know how good Joe Linton he scores in this game, a, a good header. But the the way that they they move off the ball as well. So Almiron is all over the place. He's back by the corner flag in his own half recovering the ball. Then Bruno Gramares is, is making a tackle in his own half 10 minutes from the end when they're 3-0 up and he's celebrating like he's just scored. And and that is an area of Newcastle Newcastle's game that hasn't been highlighted as much as perhaps it should have. They are one of the best pressing teams in, in the Premier League. We got a hint of that when they played... This is before the World Cup, so maybe you don't remember this. I barely remember it. But I went back and looked at the game they played at home to Man City where they played Man City, Pep Guardiola, at at their own game and got drawn. They were winning 2-0 for, for a, a large part of that match. And they've just built on that. And Leicester City just couldn't handle the, the intensity on and off the ball of, of, of Newcastle. And it was a real statement of look there's a long way to go in this season I don't even think we're we're not even like 19 fixtures through are we we're not at the we're not at the, mm. the halfway point but I don't think Newcastle barring a, a lot of bad injuries I don't think they're going anywhere they're they're a good team they are a good team Brighton also a good team we're going to talk about Brighton in just a second first a, a quick word from today's sponsors this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Welcome back, Graham. Let's talk Southampton 1, Brighton 3. The battle of the new-ish managers, I should say. Roberto De Zerbe has been there since September, I think. So maybe harsh to say that he is he is new, but maybe less of a big name. Whereas uh, Southampton, having a new manager, maybe not having that new manager bounce necessarily. No, absolutely not. So thumbs down to the notion of that new manager bounce for Southampton because they were very bad in this match. And, and I know it was... Nathan Jones's first league match in charge but what I saw wasn't very encouraging and and the situation is slightly different and I feel I feel uh, like there is a, a better opportunity to actually judge this match because Jones has had a month on the training pitch over the World Cup break Southampton didn't have many players in Qatar so I expected we would see something coherent in this match maybe not the finished product they do need players Southampton I think that squad is weaker than it has been in, in a long time um, so he is up against it but what we got was a mess of a performance from Southampton where Jones changed, changed shape five times over 90 minutes he was on his fourth sub by the time Deserbi made his first and there was a point in this match where Southampton's entire game plan seemed to be lump it long to Che Adams as the lone front man and see what he can do. And I'm a big Che Adams fan. I think I've said that on, on the show before, but that's a tough task for him when there's basically no players around him for about 20, 30 yards. And there was a period after the Ward Prowse school where Southampton were doing a better uh, job of getting players forward and making the ball stick in, if not the attacking third, at least the middle of the pitch. But they were 3-1 down by that point and, and, and it was done. So while I feel like I'm not going to judge Nathan Jones on his first Premier League match. As I say, the situation is slightly different where he's had a month on the training pitch. I did expect something better than what Southampton served up. Is there a chance that Nathan Jones had a very elaborate game plan and last minute just 
like erase the whiteboard and wrote up do what Scotland do and just lump it for Che Adams? <laughs> or am I doing a disservice to Scotland here? Yeah, I mean, we've got John McGinn getting up there with his beautiful backside. Yeah. That's what Southampton were, that's what they were missing, yeah. I was uh, literally singing the Super John McGinn song to myself. And then the commentator, I think he did something and the commentator was like a poor performance from John McGinn on the day. And it felt decidedly <laughs> less super. Brighton seemed pretty super uh, themselves. Three goals in this one. Uh, Sully March having a pretty good game. Uh, thumbs down to him not getting uh, the goal that was the own goal. He was right there and it felt like he was sort of uh, cheated out of it by Perot, uh Because if Perot's not there to knock it in, Sully March would have. And mostly I just wanted to use this opportunity to talk about how Sally March might be one of my favorite names in the Premier League. Uh, Solomon, I'm assuming, is his first name. But Sally and then March, those two together, it just feels like a good footballer is born right there. Yes, he's he's Solomon March, which I hadn't quite clocked that that is what it would be short for. But nonetheless, I'm with you there. Sally March is is, is a fantastic name for a footballer. And and Brighton, just a fantastic squad. It's another team that I think I have... Two players from Brighton in my my fantasy team, mostly because they were both relatively cheap uh, for midfielders. It's March and uh, Gross. But they don't have those huge names that you would expect for a team that are playing some of the football they're playing. But March has looked excellent. Trossard has looked great. Even Lalana in the middle uh, getting a goal in this one. Uh, Just another very competent and strong performance from Brighton. Uh, Roberto Zerbi maybe is going to be getting some looks from other clubs. I hope he doesn't. I hope Brighton have been rated enough for now but i have a feeling that will not be the case then they will lose more in january and this coming summer yeah i mean there's barely anything left they go to the training ground now and there's all the cutlery's gone where did the cutlery go chelsea took it there's nothing there for, for them to take so hopefully deserve stays for for a while um i find brighton really interesting just now because i feel like we haven't quite got our teeth into brighton post potter yet mm-hmm. no. and they've they've got some good they've had some good results i feel like with potter and he's kind of he's kind of carried this over to chelsea his one weakness he might not see it as a weakness but he his teams aren't very free-flowing in an attacking sense and he would maybe say well he's he's hoping for control over opening things up but just to see brighton use the principles that potter left behind and now have deserbi come in and and basically saying to his attackers go for it open up your game a little bit more matoma starts in, in in this match we haven't really seen much of of him we saw him at the world cup of course but he hasn't really got going as a brighton player so I'm interested to see what he does under deserbi mm-hmm. leandro trossard plays on paper at least, as a centre-forward in this game. And it is quite fluid with Trossard, Lallana, Martian and Matoma. But nonetheless, that that is an interesting team that De Zerbi has. And I am, I'm interested to see if the principles and the values and, and all the coaching that Potter has put into this team, does that wear off over time? And do Brighton become, lose that ability to control games the longer that De Zerbi is there? Or have they kind of reached this perfect balance of they've still got that, but now De Zerbi can make the most of the attacking players that they've got? So I'm, I'm, I am, I'm fascinated to see what they do in the second half of the season. Uh, hopefully what they do is keep hold of some of their players. If they don't, they can always and ask. And <laughs> Yes, that too. Uh, they can always ask their vanquished <laughs> opponents on the weekend. There was a season a couple of years ago when Southampton were just fully rated. And I think... With like a week to go before the season started, they had like 17 senior players and that was it. Uh, so uh, may- maybe Brighton can at least uh, like thank the lucky stars that they've got some of the talent they do. And may- maybe they'll reinforce in January. Who knows if they need it? Because if they keep this run going, I think they'll be just fine. Uh, also just fine uh, over the weekend were Fulham. A 3-0 win at Crystal Palace. Uh, Tim Ream, greatest uh, attacker of all time, Graham. <laughs> Yeah, so thumbs up to Tim Reeman, his first ever Premier League goal, and and what a, a finish this was as well. So Mitrovic, he wins a header from a corner kick, and Grandpa is there to to swivel and unleash a, a thunderous strike into the roof of the net. It was the best finish by an American since Hadji Wright at, at the World Cup. That's <laughs> that's what I'll say. Um, Tim Ream has genuinely had to be sincere about it yeah. for, the, for for a moment. He has genuinely had an incredible year, and and I wonder if there's an American who has had a better 2022. Tyler Adams might be up there, but let's not forget he was on the like the Leipzig bench until July. But Reem, in terms of a full body of work, he's Fulham captain for when they get promoted, and he car- he's carried that form into the Premier League. Before the World Cup, Pep Guardiola said, if, if Tim Reem was 10 years younger, he'd be playing for me, was a direct quote for Pep Guardiola, right. which is pretty high praise. 
And then, of course, he had a, a good World Cup for the US. He's called late into that squad. Difficult circumstances for him. He, he doesn't really know that team, and he performed well, I would say, at that tournament. And he's, this this performance was fantastic from him, not just in terms of the goal he scored, but defensively as well. And I think I saw last night that he signed a year extension mm-hmm. to his contract yeah. till 2024. So he's going to be at Fulham next season as well. So I don't see an American that's had a, a better 2022, which is just a, an incredible arc for him and maybe an unexpected one when he drops down to the championship with Fulham. I don't think we expected him ever to come back this emphatically. No, not at all. And and running through the like the list of starters at the World Cup and some of the immediate subs, I, I think you're right, Graham. I don't think it's close. I think Tim Ream has had the best year for sure to to come the way he has with Fulham, but then to to make that jump with the USMNT and to start... I believe every single game at the World Cup and be such a pivotal performer and then score that goal. Uh, the, the best goal since Haji Wright, you are correct. And maybe, and certainly Christian Pulisic as well. I think he, he's got that one beat too. <laughs> um, I loved this game, not just because Tim Ream scored, though I still don't quite understand why it wasn't a handball in the lead up to that goal from yeah, Mitrovic. Do I was you get fearful that, one? that it was going to get chalked off because of, because of that. Is, is it maybe down to, um, they changed the rule, didn't they? If, it, if you can basically assist with a handball now, but if the, if it's like uh, if it's the player who scores with the handball, obviously then that is chalked off. They oh, changed good. the rule like a couple seasons ago to make it even more confusing for us all. But I think Yay. it's down to that. Well, it was not confusing for my two-year-old. Thumbs up to watching games with my two-year-old. Uh, she added some excellent and appropriate commentary while eating an ice cream cone. Uh, <laughs> she added, ooh, for the red card, for the first red card. She knew immediately. I, I watched this. I, re- I rewound this trying to figure it out because she genuinely, as soon as the red card was produced, said ooh in a way that threw me because I don't think she knows what a red card means. <laughs> uh, so that was amazing. When the second red card was produced, she uttered, uh-oh. And then when we got the replay of the foul on of uh, Tompkins on Mitrovic, she added, ouch. Uh, so really, just some very appropriate commentary for her. Yeah. Thumbs up to her. Thumbs up to so- Mitrovic. So- soccer, oh, soccer, soccer fandom by osmosis there. I think yes. that's, that's what that is. Was she also chanting the referee as a W word yes, at some exactly. point as well? Of course. Yeah, I didn't love the language, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to police the language right away. I want her to of talk course. as much as she wants. Uh, but I really was just her going, ouch, when he got the elbow. I was like, yeah, exactly. Ouch, you get it. That's not fun. All right. She's not going to be the physical player. She's going to be the cerebral one. Uh, uh, yeah, of course. And thumbs up to Mitrovic for being involved in everything in this game. He has the great bending assist for De Cordova Reed's opener. Uh, he annoyed Tompkins enough that he got an elbow in the face. Still don't know how deliberate that was, but an elbow that high as the player's running by you feels... At least somewhat intentional, intentional. so Tompkins gets that second yellow. Uh, he gets the assist, sort of, with the handball for Reem's goal. Scores a header of his own. A pretty strong game from Alexander Mitrovic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he has... Has he now got 10 goals in the Premier League this season? Which is exactly. on his way. His best tally is, is, I think, is 10 previously. So he's already matched his best tally for a season. He's got more than half a season to go. We spoke about Fulham before the start of the season. I Hands up, I, I pretty much wrote them off. And one of the, the biggest mm-hmm. arguments against them that I made was they've got a bunch of players who have just never done it at Premier League level. And top of that list was Alexander Mitrovic, who has, has been up and down between the championship, was a championship goal machine, had never really been able to carry that into the Premier League. And this season, he is very much making me eat my words because there aren't many strikers. Maybe Harry Kane, uh, Haaland, I guess. Those are maybe the only two centre-forwards you would say have had a better Premier League season than Mitrovic so far. If only there could have been more for Serbia in the World Cup. That prediction would have worked out for me. But maybe he saved them all for Fulham, and and now life will be great uh, for the Cottagers. Graham, let's talk one more game, then let's have a break. Uh, Let's talk Everton 1, Wolves 2, a game that late goes Daryl Grove would have loved. I'm sure his family also loved. I think some of them may have been in attendance for this one. Uh, But a a, a very lovely game from a Wolves perspective, less so from an Everton perspective. Let's talk about Frank Lampard for a moment, shall we? Um, yes, if, if if we must. So I, I, I loved the Frank Lampard angry face after Will scored the, the winning goal in, in stoppage time. It was like when you tell a kid to do an angry face. Now do a sad yep. face. Now yep. do a surprise face. It was so ridiculously exaggerated. Um, and I have a lot of thoughts in general about Frank Lampard. Look, he's... He has, um, how to put this, he's, he's never been my favourite person. I think I've maybe mentioned that on the podcast before, so maybe I am slightly biased in, in this regard. But I think Everton are in trouble with him mm-hmm. as manager. I thought they were in trouble last season. I thought they were going down last season, and then Richarlison got hot, and they were fine in the end. 
Richarlison isn't there anymore, so that's a problem. And Lampard has just never demonstrated that he knows how to set up a team as an attacking outfit. And you see that in the way that they concede in stoppage time in this game, where basically his solution is, let's send everyone forward in the search of a goal, and obviously left everything open at the back. One strange thing was James Tarkovsky just kind of watching Wolves as they came forward. Mm -hmm. I I thought, in, in his mind, I think he's... He thinks he's jockeying the ball to kind of close off the angle, but he's not doing that at all. He is just watching as a spectator as Wolves come flying forward and then obviously score the, the winning goal. And going back to Everton, not, not everything is down to Lampard. That, that, that squad is pretty weak and it, and it doesn't sound like there's going to be much business done in the January transfer window. There might be a few loans. There's some talk of one of your boys, Taylor, um, Alanga, what's his first name again? Anthony Alanga. Um, But that seems to be about it. I don't think they're going to spend big money. And Lampard is not a maximizer of talent. He, he, we saw that at Chelsea. They won the Champions League as soon as they sacked him. And that, even though that Everton squad is weak, I would still say he's not getting the best out of those players. And he also has this bad habit of, blaming fans mm-hmm. like he did yesterday when he said Everton supporters impatience is affecting his players don't do that at that point when you've just lost at home to the team that's, that's bottom of the of the table do you think that's going to create you look at you look at teams in the Premier League this season that have harnessed that atmosphere I look at Arsenal top of the table their, their home atmosphere has been brilliant that's the kind of that's what you want to to harness if you're in that situation and Lampard is just not doing that at all I think he's out of his depth, frankly, and Everton are sleepwalking towards relegation again as as long as as, as he's the manager. I need to find my prediction for uh, this season, but it was something along the lines of if Everton are clear of the relegation zone or well clear of the relegation zone by the World Cup break, they will be fine. If they are not, they will be relegated. And I would say... Being where they are is not being particularly clear of the relegation zone. Yeah, so, they're one uh, point, aren't they? Yeah, one point above yeah. the bottom three? Yep, Wolves uh, just behind them. They could have made that a more sizable gap this weekend and failed to do so. So I think it's going to be tough times for Everton. I just I think that moment with Lampard really stood out to me because it reminded me of... I'm talking about the face he made if people missed it. I hope there's a clip somewhere. Uh, but it reminded <laughs> me of like my youth coaches when we had a really bad game and they were like all right you guys didn't want to run during the game like get on the line we're running sprints now like in the immediate post game and all the parents were very quiet and knew that it was a bad game like I would not have been surprised if Lampard made the entire Everton team that finished that game like take five laps or run 10 wind sprints or something it just seemed like that was his reaction in the immediate uh, aftermath of that goal was like we didn't try enough the fans don't care enough i'm the only one who's got that is that is all he's got so if 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 that isn't working you're in trouble because i I, there was a point last season where it felt like and i spoke about this at the time he wanted to be this expansive you know klopp guardiola manager i know they're slightly different as coaches but nonetheless he wanted to be like a modern attacking coach and then when Everton were in real trouble last year. He basically decided to become his uncle. He basically decided to become Harry Redknapp and 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 sit back and play five at the back and then re- rely on Richarlison to do something and attack. And it, and it worked. But the ceiling on what you can do with that that strategy is very very low, especially when you lose the player whose job it was to do everything in the attack. Richarlison's now a Spurs player. Yeah. So is Neil Mope doing? Like, is he doing the Richarlison job for Everton as a centre-forward? Uh, I don't think so. Dwight McNeil has been poor this season. I think he's he is a good player. Mm-hmm. Anthony Gordon is a good player as well. But putting that sort of pressure on him as a teenager to save Everton in an attacking sense is, is just unfair. And also, he's you know he's a different sort of player to Richarlison. He's, he's a winger. He can't influence the game, games in the same way. I just don't see Lampard as a coach who can set up a team effectively really in an attacking or a defensive sense, and this match can improve that. What I'm now hoping for is Frank Lampard continues to learn the wrong lessons and makes Neil Mopé get the Richarlison tattoo that Richarlison has on his back. <laughs> Neil Mopé has to get that ah, yes. thing. That's what's holding him back. That will make the difference. Uh, yeah, I- he, he needs a tattoo of Neymar uh, with <laughs> eye makeup on and Pele's signature <laughs> on his back. And let's get the Ronaldo statue in there just for good measure. Let's throw that on the back of too, course. Neil. Okay, perfect. Yeah, perfect. that'll inspire him. A <laughs> uh, couple more games still to be discussed back soon to get to them. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back, Graham. Let's talk about Liverpool's 3-1 win on the road at Aston Villa. They didn't even need Cody Gakpo to make this happen. All they needed was Trent Alexander-Arnold to pull out a pass that I still don't fully understand how he saw it or did it or made it happen. But it was real, real good. That is my expert takeaway. (laughs) Yeah, so big thumbs up to that pass for Salah's goal, the first Liverpool goal. Which was incredible. And and almost no other player would even think to play that ball in that phase of the attack. I think that's the most astonishing thing. It's actually the phase of the attack where he makes that that pass. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, I think it's a corner kick, right? Mm-hmm. It's, yep. it's a corner. Liverpool have a corner. It's partially cleared to the edge of the box. And everyone who's watched a, a soccer game knows what phase of, of the attack happens then. Everyone kind of reorganizes the player 30 yards out from the attacking player, 30 yards out from goal, takes a touch and everything resets again. Not for Trent Alexander-Arnold. Almost immediately, he spots Andy Robertson's run. He's making a run down, down the right side, funnily enough, which I know is unusual for him. Um, he then finds him with this first time outside of the, the boot pass, which is low. Robertson um, then is inside the box. His first touch assist was pretty good either. It wasn't yep. bad either. And then Salah is, is in close range to, to finish with the, the goalkeeper out of the equation. But that pass has to be one of the passes of the season. As I say, not just the, the execution, the technical ability, but just the imagination at that phase of the attack to pull that off, to even attempt it, was was remarkable. And it made me, for a moment, like I forgot that Trent Alexander-Arnold had been in the England squad. And I thought, like, is this what happens when you don't have these three players go to the World Cup? They're just out there on the training pitch like drawing up these ridiculous plays to make happen. Uh, but maybe it was just Robertson and uh, Salah banking on Trent Alexander-Arnold being able to hit that ball, and they just practiced the one-time assist mm. and tap-in goal. That one was probably easier to practice than the yeah. assist from well, Alexander-Arnold. T. TAA basically wasn't at the World Cup. He basically spent his time in Qatar at, yep. I don't know, like Salt Bay Doha uh, <laughs> is, is basically where he was for a month. Yeah, him and Infantino. Uh, yep. 
yeah. I mean, that is uh, this is an old talking point, but it, it, it is remarkable that he he isn't more influential for England. And, mm. and I understand. I've written stuff saying, look, Southgate is within his rights to to play James or or Walker or Trippier, but just to have someone that that creative in in your squad and not use him is is quite something. But thankfully, Liverpool used him, and we got to see just how creative he can be in this match. So Liverpool used him. If you behind the curtain, we use a Google Doc uh, for these shows where we all just put in like little things that we want to talk about, sort of the uh, the the one sentence summary, so that we we know like what ground we're going to cover. And Graham, based on one of these points, I just have a quick preemptive question: Is Ben Doak Scottish? Yes, yes. Okay, so Graham, <laughs> Ben Doak is going to win the Ballon d'Or five times. Is that correct? Of course, okay. yeah, at least five times and a World Cup and a European Championships, yeah. So, so for anyone who doesn't know, Ben Ben Doak, Ben Doak is a a seventeen year old, um, and he comes on for the final two minutes of this match, um, for Liverpool with the game basically already done, and and it's a thumbs up to the whole of Scotland getting overexcited about a player that we are all counting on to be our Messi. Not that not that we are putting any pressure on him or or, or anything, um, but. Had he scored, I mean, he didn't score, so this is completely a moot point, but had he scored in those two minutes, he would have been <laughs> Liverpool's youngest ever Premier League scoring, scorer. So we're, we're, we're giving him these kind of like, uh, these ghost accolades that didn't actually happen, but we can put it on the CV anyway. But, but seriously, he, he looks like, I'll keep this short because this is maybe a little bit indulgent, but he looks like a serious talent. He's, he's been ripping it up in the, the Youth Champions League this season. He's got remarkable final product for, for a young player. Klopp has spoken about how good he is and I think what's happened is over the World Cup break he's been training with Liverpool I think he played in a couple of their friendly matches and looked very very good and now he's getting Premier League minutes at at 17 and there was an athletic piece a week ago calling him Liverpool's Wayne Rooney and that piece wasn't even written by a Scottish person so this is where the excitement might be legitimate where Liverpool fans are just as excited as Scottish people and I think uh, Boxing Day was the start of his career where he's going to win five Ballon d'Ors and yeah dominate European football for 15 years to come. And hilariously enough, he continues the trend of Scotland only producing fullbacks because according to his Wikipedia page, he is listed as a fullback first. What is it? What is the water in Scotland doing (laughs) that makes you only produce very exciting attacking fullbacks? I don't know, because we've got Josh, Do- Josh Doig in Serie A as well. So he's wanted by Juventus. There's there's another one. I think Ben Doak, so he was at Celtic as an academy player. He played as a fullback there. I think Liverpool have used him more as a winger. So I'm kind of hoping that I think everyone in Scotland is hoping he's going to be like this attacking threat that, look, I love Che Adams and I like uh, John McGinn, but we don't have a world-class attacker. We do have Super John McGinn, but Thank we you. don't have the, a world-class you. player. And hopefully... Again, he's 17 years old. He's played two minutes in the Premier League. But Ben Ben Doak is a very exciting player, and I, I want to see more from him. Uh, if we ever have the moment where Graham and his clone are pointing at each other and I have to decide which one to shoot, I will ask them, if I say John McGinn, what would you say? And whichever one of you <laughs> says super first is is surviving that one. Because for a moment, it sounded very odd, you just calling him John McGinn and not adding the appropriate title. So thank you mm, for fixing like that. a plot from Looper or something. <laughs> It's the sequel. It's the very bad uh, sequel that will probably not get made. <laughs> uh, speaking of very bad but maybe good, uh, let's talk Darwin <laughs> Nunez for a moment, Graham. Because his tagline. I I I am confused. I am confused by Darwin Nunez. Jurgen Klopp comes out and says like he was our best player. This was one of his best performances. Mm. He was excellent. The goals will come. I think that is a fair summary of Nunez in this game. Uh, who misses a couple chances, but then worked as hard as he could possibly work to keep the ball alive for the third goal. Uh, where are you on Darwin Nunez, Graham? Yeah. He, he is a very chaotic person. He is the yes, chaos king. Well so, for, so for me, that is a big thumbs up. Uh, and, and, and every game that he plays is just more entertaining for him being there. I am not a Liverpool fan, so maybe Liverpool fans feel slightly different about that. I can imagine sometimes he's a thumbs down for them. But I kind of agree with Jurgen Klopp. This is this is one of these these things where I feel like Joe would be on my side with this one yeah. because Darwin Nunes he misses a, a number of good opportunities. But Liverpool watching this game, they are definitely a better team for his influence in in this match. He gets in so many good positions, um, and having him as that option over the top, it, they're, they're kind of using him as they used Manny a lot of the time where you're, you're sending that diagonal ball over the top and he's, he's stretching the pitch and Klopp is doing that thing right now where he's using Nunes and Salah as a front two. 
I have questions about how that's going to evolve when Gakpo's part of part of that front line, and obviously you've got Luis Diaz to come back, Dugo Jota as well as injured, Roberto Firmino is is in there, so a lot of attacking players to fit mm-hmm. into to, into that front line. But right now, I very much like that Nunes and, and Salah um, front two, and there is. There is certainly a case to be made that he could do with refining a lot of his decision makings. Um, Mm. He makes a lot of decisions that I would make as a footballer. So I'll give you an example. There was a weird sequence in the first half of this match where the ball spun miles up in the air where it's basically got snow on it as it's coming back down. And Nunes is about 20 yards out, completely free as the ball like comes back down to him. If that's me playing pickup or fives or whatever, I am trying to lash that ball first time on the volley as hard as I can. Yep. And then I'm apologizing and going to get it from over the fence. You kind of expect an 80 million striker to make a different decision in that, <laughs> uh, in that situation. But no, that's basically what he did. And obviously, because he's an elite level, elite level footballer, he didn't send it over the fence. He actually forced, um, who was the Villa goalkeeper in this game? Because it's obviously not Gold, Mr. Golden Glove himself. I can't remember who it was. Oh, it's uh, Robin Olsen, isn't it? He for, he forces Olsen into into save. But nonetheless, there are there are times when you think he could he could refine him, his output yeah. a little bit there, and 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 that's the theory with that. That I think Klopp is kind of leaning into is that that refinement in his execution will come with maturity, and if 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 that happens for Liverpool, I think they've got the next Edison Cavani. Um, yeah. I think that's the sort of player he is. If it doesn't happen, they've got another Alvaro Morata. Like that, that's the, that's the gamble that Liverpool have made in paying £80 million for that player. But I am, if I was a Liverpool fan, I'd be willing to see how that pans out because he's got huge potential and I think he's already making them a better team. Agreed. Even that moment uh, he has in the 75th where it's the, the counterattack from, I think, a Villa corner. Salah plays him in. It's a great ball for Mohamed Salah. Uh, and that starts the whole move. But Nunez... Uh, gets the ball. It's a great first touch to kind of send him away from the defender. Uh, carries it 40 yards and then gets a shot off with his weaker foot, uh, with the defender like on his back at his side, uh, and puts it wide. And, and maybe could have done better. Maybe could have hit the frame. I'm not going to say he should have done better. The commentators definitely did over <laughs> here. They were very, sh- like, dismayed that he hadn't done better with that one. To my mind, that's a pretty difficult run. And I agree with you entirely, Graham, that that's one where I think more reps, more consistency, just a little bit more belief. And I think he starts burying those. And as soon as he does, he becomes that next level striker, unless he doesn't. And then he does become erratic like a Maratha or an Higuain. Uh, so let's hope that that doesn't happen for him, even if I, as a Man United fan, wouldn't hate it entirely for that that purpose. <laughs> but I like Darwin Nunez. I think he does make this Liverpool team better. And... Also, just a lot more fun to watch. He he fights for everything. I, I'm glad you drew the Edson Cavani comparison because he really is just a, a, like what I think of when it comes to a Uruguayan attacker, that he is technical and creative and can score some worldies, but then is also just going to never stop working, never stop running. He's going to fight for everything, uh, will relish a physical challenge, and, yeah. and I think is just a perfect player for Liverpool with a little bit more time, with maybe some f- a few more players back fit and pushing him to those next levels. I think he will be a, a big impact player for Liverpool. Yeah. And, and if I do say so myself, I think the Cavani comparison is, is the right one because... That may seem a little bit lazy because they're both Uruguayan and, you know, both kind of long hair and kind of look relatively similar, yeah. like tall centre forwards. Better but, cheekbones and, for Cavani. Darwin Nunez has to work on yeah. the cheekbones, but otherwise, yeah. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, that's that's how he should spend his time in, on the training yes. ground. That's, yeah. that, I think, like, was there not a Ronaldo product that he promoted once that was like to work your cheekbones and it was like this thing you put in your mouth and you bit down on it and then released and then bit down on it and released i'm sure that was a ronaldo product that he promoted anyway Ah. darwin Nunes should get on one of those um but the cavani comparison there was a period in cavani's career where all the stuff that we said we're saying about Nunes now we said about cavani there was a time when and early on at psg he was obviously brilliant for napoli but early on at psg it was cavani misses opportunities he needs to refine as as as, you know his attacking output and then something just changed and that that criticism was criticism was never really made of him again that's what liverpool want they want that that switch where maturity turns nunez into cavani so uh we will see what happens with darwin nunez but we would assume it'll be okay we assume liverpool will be okay uh three goals against villa away is a good way to do that signing cody gakpo is a good way to to look strong and look like you're going to be pretty exciting for the rest of the season 
Arsenal continue to look strong. They didn't at first. They go 1-0 down in their 3-1 win over West Ham. And then back they come uh, with another win. Another, not, not necessarily emphatic win, but just a very strong performance from Arsenal in what has become a very strong season for them. They remain uh, top of the table. Seven points clear of Newcastle in second. Newcastle having played uh, one more game. Men's City behind in third, having played one game fewer. Uh, so that gap will likely close. But for now, Arsenal comfortably top. Uh, and Graham pretty comfortable in this game yeah so thumbs up for Arsenal basically banishing all the fears that had built up over the over the World Cup break obviously they lose uh, Gabriel Jesus over the 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 World Cup break he is injured I can never really find how long he is injured for I'm not sure if Arsenal are keeping that under wraps whether that's a serious injury or whether he's going to be out for two or three weeks they say late February is what Fatmob says but they also say like that can change I've seen that go from late February to late March really really quickly yeah, so there's not a great deal of information of how long he will be missing for. But I think as the World Cup had gone on, Arsenal had kind of feared, you know what Arsenal fans are, are mm-hmm. like, they allow they allow fears to fester and, and they were kind of getting kind of obsessed with, uh, with this World Cup break had come at the wrong time and, and we've lost Jesus and it's going to be difficult when we come back. And, and yes, they fall behind, but actually I think that should embolden them further is that they do fall behind in this game and they're able to to break through West Ham. They win this one pretty comfortably in the end, I think it's a thumbs up to the idea of Eddie Nketiah being the Jesus replacement that Arsenal needs. Well, he's out injured um, because he scores in this game. His career has been weird up until mm-hmm. now. So he's, he's 23 years old. He's not that young anymore. But I think Arsenal fans have always believed he could be uh, their next, I don't know, like Ian Wright or someone like that. Like I, I know Ian Wright wasn't homegrown. He came from Crystal Palace, didn't he? But nonetheless, a, a, one of their own, essentially. I don't think he will ever be that player, but as as a deputy for Jesus, he he certainly has a role to play. His his finish for the third goal was excellent, and it was really interesting to read that he'd been working on that sort of goal where he he uses his physicality to roll the defender and create the space for the the shot. There was I can't remember which journalist it was that reported it, but apparently over the World Cup break he'd been working on stuff like that. So I imagine he got a great deal of vindication from that. But even before the goal. Enketa, he was he was dropping deep. He was linking the attack in the way that Jesus has, has done in the first half of the season. And the drop-off that even I thought might happen after that injury didn't really happen. And even, even as West Ham take the lead in this game, it felt like it came against the run of play. It, it came out of nothing. Arsenal had been the better team as they're losing at half-time or drawing at half-time. I can't remember when the equaliser comes. It felt like it was slightly unfortunate and harsh on Arsenal that Arsenal, in looking at the full 90 minutes, they were certainly the better team and they deserved to win this match. They did deserve to win this match. We deserved to get Ryan Bailey on this episode. He told us uh, yesterday morning he wouldn't be able to make it. Joe, obviously not with us either. Ryan did tell us that he wouldn't be able to be here before this game. Uh, but I'm now choosing to believe retroactively that he knew that Lucas Paqueta would be uh, humiliated by Martin Odegaard, <laughs> have his oh, yeah. stole, uh, soul stolen, and Ryan just couldn't take the double embarrassment of predicting big things for Lucas Paqueta in the World Cup and then having him humiliated here. So I'm giving thumbs down to Ryan for not being here, but thumbs up to Lucas Paqueta. You need a rube to make a Cruyff Meg happen, and he was willing <laughs> to be that uh, that sacrifice. So a heroic, uh, sell, like like nutmeg performance from Lucas Paqueta. That turn from Odegaard was excellent. He gets two assists so in this good. game, and yet that turn and Meg was my favorite moment of this one. Yeah, so so thumbs up to Odegaard for becoming the player we all knew he could yep. become. And, and if Arsenal win the title this season, which obviously is a possibility now, I think Odegaard will be a player of the year content, con- candidate, yep. contender. He is absolutely balling this season. And, and, and this match was one of his best performances so far in the campaign. And, and watching him here... He is Arsenal's Luka Modric, which was which he was meant to be for Real Madrid. Yeah, right. He was meant to be the player to succeed Luka Modric for Real Madrid. He was very literally meant to be the, the the new Luka Modric. But Real Madrid sold him to add cash to the Mbappe fund, which worked out really well for them, of course. And <laughs> Arsenal are now benefiting. And in this game, he was everywhere. He 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 drops deep. He drifts out wide. He makes late runs into the box. He's added goals to his game this season, which I think is, is a big deal for Arsenal, particularly now with Jesus. I know Jesus isn't maybe a 20-goal-a-season striker, but nonetheless, having goals from midfield from Odegaard is, is a big deal for Arsenal. And as you say, there was that, that Cruyff nutmeg moment on Bowen and Paqueta, which was was just incredible. Um, it feels like he's getting better and better, and some players are weighed down by the captain's armband of course Odegaard given the captain's armband this season 
I think it's emboldened him this season, and, and I love watching him play at the moment. Agreed. He was so all over the place that uh, when they cut to Arsene Wenger in the stands, uh, waving and looking happy, I half expected Mo- Martin Odegaard just to be sitting next to him briefly, like out of nowhere, and then you cut back to the pitch, and Martin Odegaard is there as well, which would have, I guess, required <laughs> magic. But you never know with him, because he's got some ability. Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, Wenger was just dreaming of a team of Odegaard, Cazorla, Riziki, like players who would just walk the ball into the, into the back net. There was a point in this match where it felt like Arsenal were being slightly over elaborate with a lot of their passing play in the attacking third. And I was thinking to myself, this is the perfect Arsene Wenger tribute for him being back at the Emirates for, for the first time at, since, since he left Arsenal four years ago. So thumbs up for sentimentality because it, it was quite nice to see him back. At, 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 uh, mm. at Arsenal, which is quite astonishing that he hasn't been there since 2018, given how many times Alex Ferguson goes to watch my United <laughs> games. I'm pretty sure he has a bedroom at Old Trafford uh, <laughs> yeah. at this point. But but yeah, it was it was nice to see Wenger there. And, and, and I, to be sincere for a moment, I watched the documentary about him a while ago and he spoke about that. He spoke about how he hadn't been back to Arsenal for, for a match because, as he put it in that documentary, there was nothing there for him, is, is, how, what, is what he said. And, and that made me sad. Um, it was clear that Arsenal, rather than being a source of pride for him, I mean, you think of what, what, what he achieved at Arsenal, he kind of revolutionised English football in, thing, in terms of things like uh, nutrition and training methods. And the Emirates itself... I mean, I know he literally didn't build it. He wasn't there with the bricks and mortar. But nonetheless, you, you could know. say that you stadium. He could have been there. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Yeah, he was a hands-on coach. Yeah, so maybe he was a, a, a hands-on stadium builder as well. But that that whole stadium and setup is, is kind of was built by Arsene Wenger. So it was a shame that something that should have been a source of pride for him became something so painful. So if, so if that has changed and he's allowed you know, time to wash away that, that hurt, I guess, then, then that's a good thing. So I, I hope he enjoyed being back, even though he seems uh, determined to ruin the World Cup and his current job. Do, do you think, this is a cynical question, but an actual question, do you think there's a part of him that is sort of like not loving that Arsenal are top of the table without oh, him? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's natural, to be fair. I think it, 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 that's just human emotion, isn't it? Like the Arsenal fans for years, kind of told them that they could do better without him. And then initially that wasn't the case, yeah. but now that seems to have panned out that Arsenal have kind of taken uh, steps as a modern team. And I think it's, it's not a coincidence that he is there in a season to further your cynical point. He is there, he's back for his first match in a, yeah. in a season where things are going well. So it's much easier for him to walk you know, into the Emirates yeah. with all the fans when they're all happy, and they, you know he 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 gets kind of the warmth from that that fan base. Whereas if they'd, he'd come in the Emery season or even the first Arteta season, maybe that warmth isn't there yeah. so much. So maybe I, this I, I guy's think, looking a little bit better, huh? huh? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So then he showed up to try to reverse jinx them in this game. And it almost worked uh, for the first half, less so in the second. Uh, so credit to Arsenal for topping the table for getting all three points. Graham, credit to you uh, for, for rolling with me here as we went through all the Boxing Day games. As you said, there are games today. Maybe we'll talk about those tomorrow, but we're definitely going to be doing some listener questions tomorrow. Uh, then later in the week, we're going to be assigning some New Year's resolutions for ourselves, but also for uh, some managers, players, and the like uh, in the world of soccer for now, any other thumbs one way or the other uh, for this one before we call it quits? Just thumbs up for the McAllisters again. I mean, what a life <laughs> that they have. I'm going to watch Home Alone 2 later today. Um, so I'll feed back with my, with my thoughts on that one. I'm sure that is just as coherent a uh, body of work. I, I think it's just a really fitting movie to watch, given, as we've talked about previously, that we had a Kevin playing for Mexico and we had a Mac Allister playing for Argentina. So we did have a <laughs> Kevin McAllister uh, combo at the World Cup. We had it on Graham's television screen. Uh, we had a lot of Boxing Day games. We talked about them all. Graham Ruthven, thank you for being here for over an hour to talk about all that was on Boxing Day. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We will talk to you all again very soon. 